Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am joined by, by my compatriot, Dan Larison, each week as we seek out common sense in a town of special interests, agenda-driven, ideological, and reactionary foreign policy. We will be talking to Dan Caldwell of Stand Together and Concerned Veterans of America in the second half about the billions of dollars the U.S. is sending in aid and weapons to Ukraine. But first, I'd like to give a special shout out to our ace producer, Remzo Martinez, who is getting married this weekend. I've known Remzo since he was an intern for me at the American Conservative, and I know he has been dating his bride-to-be for about seven years or so. Um, He's been working very hard towards this moment for some time and is very excited. So we wish the best for both of them and hope they can enjoy a relaxing honeymoon far from the lure of headlines and world events. But alas, we can't stay away from the news cycle for long. Um, Dan, you wrote a piece for antiwar.com this week, headline, Tom Cotton, fanatical militarist. Uh, That's a pretty strong charge, but I'm afraid it fits for Tom Cotton. You wrote about his recent speech at a National Review-sponsored conference on the future of conservative foreign policy. He said things like Washington's farewell address regarding foreign entanglements was a quaint notion for its time and that folks like us trotted out just to justify our isolationism. You point out that he tries to make John Quincy Adams out to be an interventionist. His whole approach to Ukraine is typically primacist, saying the U.S. must do more to aid Ukraine because it is in our best interest as a world democracy and we as world leaders of democracy to do so. In your words, Quote, Cotton's own foreign policy record has been almost comically imprudent. He is predictably a reflexive interventionist, but he also shares with John Bolton a deep-seated hostility to diplomacy, including all arms control and non-proliferation agreements. And, quote, it is what one should expect from a hardline militarist. In each case where Cotton has succeeded in getting his way, he has helped to make the country and the world less secure. Dan, I was struck by the language Cotton used. He is—he no longer sounds like the straight-up neoconservative, which was popular uh, in the 2000s. But now I'm hearing all of this Jacksonian language mixed in with a bit of internationalism. And I'm guessing it's all to appeal to the younger conservatives and Trump supporters who are more wary of global policing Um, and nation building, but still want to believe that the U.S. has the greatest military in the world and will use it for the right cause. To me, it's all very manipulative and weak. I also understand he is writing a book. Um, Word that will be is that he will be attacking Democrats, um, saying that they've made mistakes in every generation and that they oppose American power. Um, But he also is using his book to attack you know, uh, those of us on the right who have been, you know, critical of interventionism um, as as isolationists and specifically the, the populist right. Uh, so, you know, I, I, give me your thoughts on, on this whole Tom Cotton uh, or this new new old Tom Cotton that we're seeing. Uh, sure, Kelly. So, uh, well, a lot of what I uh, thought about the the speech is in is in that column, but uh, the my 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 first response to to listening to it was, uh, like you said, how, how manipulative it was, how how disingenuous it was to try to dress up uh, his hardline policies, his interventionism, 
as though it were uh, this long-standing, or as though it derived from the same place as long-standing conservative uh, ideas about uh, what is in the best interest of the United States. And so when he tries to uh, revise or or twist the farewell address by Washington or John Quincy Adams' own record uh, into a, an endorsement of his kind of foreign policy, uh, I, I suppose on one, one level, uh, restrainers and non-interventionists should take it as a compliment that he feels the need to dress up his ideas in our language and, and cite the people that we usually cite as authorities uh, in order to make his argument. But but what you really get from it is is just the, the dishonest distortion of the record uh, that he's willing to engage in uh, and, and the way that he will really uh, twist everything, uh, even, even the most obvious non-interventionists like John Quincy Adams into something else. So that at one point in his speech, he actually said, uh, and, and this is, I mean, this is a, a laugh line for sure, uh, that if he had been around uh, in the eighties, that John Quincy Adams would have been a big fan of the invasion of Grenada. Oh, boy. And I, mean, I just, I can't, I can't imagine Jan, John Quincy Adams caring <laughs> about Grenada. Um, he, you know, even if he understood the the current context in which it took place, it, it would he would not have been uh, a fan of everything that, that Ronald Reagan did, uh, and so part part of what part of what Cotton was doing was trying to shoehorn all of these earlier presidents and earlier conservative leaders uh, into uh, a Reaganite mold or, or what he perceived as a Reaganite mold. But as I was as I pointed out in the column, and as and I'll stress again. Uh, in his hostility to arms control, Tom Cotton is as anti-Reagan as you can possibly get. Uh, Reagan is the one who presided over the negotiations uh, that led to the INF Treaty that Cotton wanted us to scrap and that he urged Trump to get out of. And of course, Trump did what Cotton wanted, uh, which has freed the Russians to deploy any number of intermediate range missiles in Europe, uh, which is hardly in the interests of Europe or, or the United States. But this is what Cotton thinks of as strength, uh, tearing up arms control agreements so that we can build as many weapons as we want, of, as, of whatever type we want. Uh, he said previously that New START is a one-sided treaty, even though by definition it's a mutually restricting treaty. Uh, and of course, he's one of the, the great saboteurs of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, he was trying to destroy it even before it was finalized and, and published that ridiculous letter uh, back in 2015 uh, along with his Republican colleagues, saying that uh, any deal, and any sent it to the Iranian government, that any deal that you negotiate with Obama, uh, we're going to destroy. And of course, they they proved to be they they were good as their word on that one. Uh, they have sought to destroy it ever since. Um, and there's there's no uh, basically there's no diplomatic agreement that Cotton has ever seen that he doesn't want to tear up. And then so that's the the flip side of his his otherwise militaristic approach to things. Uh, he doesn't want to negotiate with anyone. He just wants uh, to threaten and attack them. And that that's clearly as far removed from uh, not going abroad in search of monsters to destroy as you can get. Uh, but it's, and so it's, it's clear that he and people like him feel threatened uh, by both John Quincy Adams and people that look to John Quincy Adams as inspiration uh, because they, they feel the need to appropriate him and, and, and reinvent him as something else. Um, and so, I, you know, on the one hand, I think that shows that, that we're making some progress, uh, and they're a little bit worried about the progress we're making. 
and I, and I think it also shows just how willing they are to argue in bad faith and, and twist things to try to, to keep their same policies intact uh, with just a, a different window dressing. Yeah. And, you know, they're very, they are very good at appropriation and they appropriate Ronald Reagan, too. I mean, uh, anybody uh, with a current point of view can look at Reagan and try to interpret things that he had done to fit their worldview today. I mean, we forget that after uh, 240 uh, U.S. Marines were killed in, in Beirut, what did he do? He didn't say, it's war, boys, and, and, and just start a world war over it. He actually um, withdrew um, our troops from Beirut, um, which was a pretty damn big thing to do. Now, one could say if a Democrat had done that, they'd be you know, treated as you know, traitors and defeatists and, 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 and whatnot. Um, so it took uh, a Republican and, it, and, uh, and uh, someone of his stature in terms of his foreign policy up to that moment to say, no, this we're getting out of there. That's the right thing to do to de-escalate. Um, so one could say, well, maybe Reagan maybe would have never gotten us into Iraq. You know, maybe he would have been more like H.W. Bush and stopped after 1991 and didn't move for towards regime change in Iraq to decapitate um, Saddam Hussein, unleashing all sorts of um, unintended forces throughout the region. So um, yeah, this whole historical appropriation thing is, it gets old. And going back and saying George Washington's farewell address was a quaint little notion for that time, but it doesn't apply today. And it's just being used as isolations. I find that very insulting, but I do agree with you. It does seem that um, not just us, you know, the, the, you know, or at least me, I'm a more of a transpartisan sort of independent um, thinker on these issues, but I think his fellow conservatives are getting under his skin because he, he specifically goes after these populist conservatives that have, uh, have gotten emboldened uh, through the Trump years to um, question you know, the status quo foreign policy. And, and it's not just the nation building, but it is the, the complete overreach of the U.S. government, the empire building, um, the, the um, hundreds of bases we have and the tens of thousands of troops we have overseas, questioning the, you know, the mission of NATO, uh, questioning what's going on in, in Ukraine and Russia, um, had wanted to get out of Afghanistan, had actually agreed with the Biden administration, had cheer-led cheer you know, um, you know, Trump getting uh, wanting to get out of Afghanistan. I think those conservatives have gotten under the skin of Tom Cotton and the National Review types, which we know National Review was born out of this anti-communist tradition. Um, they were very much part of the hawkish Republican right for decades. They had supported the war in Iraq until William F. Buckley changed his mind. So they're still living in the past and they don't like it that these really smart conservatives are coming out of the woodwork and um, they're not knee jerk. They're not reactionary. They're very well read. And they are saying, no, we have been we have been on the wrong trajectory over the last um, 20, 30 years. And that real conservatives are more like George Washington's farewell address and the Taft tradition and um, even John Quincy Adams and, um, and, and his, um, his warnings. So um, I do see an interesting split uh, among the right right now over this. 
Well, and you, and you mentioned the, the Cold War hawkishness of National Review. Uh, one of the, and the, the, the main problem uh, is that, of course, that hawkishness didn't go away. It intensified after the Cold War ended. Uh, so even if you could justify to yourself in your own mind uh, many Cold War policies because of the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union ceased to exist, so should many of those policies have ceased to exist. Uh, and well, one of the things that I found kind of it was unintentionally funny. Cotton wasn't trying to to make people laugh when he was saying this, but he kept emphasizing that policy should change as circumstances change. Of course, this is how he justified retconning uh, the earlier presidents as essentially interventionists. And he said, "Well, if they were here under current circumstances, they would agree with me," uh, and you know, which is very convenient uh, <laughs> since there's no evidence of that. But if if you're supposed to change policies when circumstances change then when the major threat to the United States, the major rival, ceases to exist, then surely our foreign policy should become less activist and less interventionist, right? I mean, that would it would follow that as circumstances have changed, we don't need to be doing what we were doing throughout the Cold War, but instead we did even more of it uh, in many respects. And so how is it uh, that you're supposedly being prudent, and he kept emphasizing prudence and yeah. prudential judgment, prudential reasoning as being so important. Uh, how are you being prudent if you're doing even more than you need to do uh, all around the world and intervening in places that ha- where you have no vital interests? H- how is that prudence? Of course, it's not. It's, it's, it's ideological obsession and, and, as I said in the column, fanatical militarism, which in the end is what is, is driving Cotton. It's why he wants us to attack Iran uh, he's he's been bent on attacking Iran for years, and and with Trump, he thought he might finally get his chance, and and Trump disappointed him a bit, I guess. But but Cotton is still out there banging the drum for that, and so that's something to to be very wary of, uh, looking ahead uh, uh, to to where Cotton may be going uh, in his career and where the Republican Party is going, whether it will end up signing up with him uh, or going a different way. I am so happy to welcome Dan Caldwell to the show today. Dan is the Vice President of Foreign Policy for Stand Together. He is also a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and the Iraq War, and a Senior Advisor for Concerned Veterans of America. Welcome to Crashing the War Party, Dan. Thanks for having me on today. Sure. Listen, I you know I, I know we have some big issues to talk about today, but I was just wondering if you could tell me um, a little bit about yourself uh, being a veteran and having this unique perspective on U.S. foreign policy, can you tell me uh, two things? A little bit about how you got into this space in terms of um, your work with Concerned Veterans of America and Defense Priorities and Stand Together. Um, and tell me a little bit about Stand Together, like what what you're working on there. Sure. So um, let me start with Stand Together, if that's all right. So Stand Together is a, a group of philanthropic organizations uh, whose mission it is to uh, create the conditions for a society that is free and open and based on the principles of human progress. And one of the major issues that we cover is foreign policy. And um, we support a wide range of groups 
that uh, do foreign policy research, that are in academia, and then do foreign policy advocacy. And we as a community have been big advocates of realism restraint, which I, I know that both of you uh, have talked about a lot and most of your listeners are, are aware of that. And uh, we as a core community as well, in addition to supporting other organizations, um, we uh, do our own advocacy as well too. Um, and one of the groups that I'm affiliated with, Concerned Veterans for America, um, is a grassroots veterans advocacy organization whose main mission is to organize veterans to advocate uh, for policies that preserve the freedom and prosperity we fought and sacrificed for while in uniform. And over the last uh, four years or so has become increasingly involved in the foreign policy debate. And so um, we're really blessed to work with a, a broad range of, of groups and to help the realism restraint movement grow. And it's honestly been really exciting to be a part of um, the last few years. And, and I got to say, like, in, in some ways, when I'm talking to people like you, Kelly, and you, Daniel, you know, like, I, I'm a new, I, I'm a relative newcomer to this fight. And um, uh, I know I'm on the tail end of really what has been kind of a slow, um, <clears throat> kind of a, a slow change, I guess, that's kind of accelerated. Maybe you, you both don't agree with that. Uh, moving away from the foreign policy consensus that dominated uh, after the end of the Cold War. And uh, um, I, I've been on the time when things really started to uh, uh, pick up and, and really wasn't as involved in, you know, the, shall we say, the dark days of the mid 2000s or, or you know, the early 2010s and whatnot. So, um, you know, that I think kind of gets to where I, how I came into this fight and, and kind of my own personal evolution. So, um, you know, Kelly, as you mentioned, I, I serve in the United States Marine Corps. Um, I, I grew up in Arizona, and Arizona is kind of an interesting place politically. I think today when people think politics in Arizona, they think of people like uh, Senator John McCain. And, and obviously, you know, we all know about his foreign policy beliefs. But, you know, Arizona has always kind of been a place where there's been this more libertarian infused conservatism. And um, obviously during the Cold War, that meant kind of a more hawkish foreign policy. But after the end of the Cold War, I, I think you saw, um, you know, more kind of skepticism uh, emerging from, from certain elements of that movement about America being, you know, too extended in the world and particularly engaging in these nation building missions in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and even the Balkans before that. And so I always kind of grew up around that and, you know, um, was not necessarily, um, shall we say, indoctrinated in, in what would be defined as, as neoconservatism. And I also, you know, interestingly had, had an interesting experience in, in my high school. I went to a Jesuit high school and the Jesuits embraced liberation theology and, and whatnot. And I am not a fan by any means of, of liberation theology. I, 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 I do not agree with it whatsoever, but they obviously have a, a, a perspective on foreign policy that, that is different than a lot of folks um, in more of the you know traditional Republican and even traditional Democrat uh, circles. And so that was an interesting experience. I, I didn't drift towards liberation theology, progressivism. Um, I, you know, always kind of considered myself more um, in the mold of a, a of a a 
you know, a, on, on foreign policy, a, a Pat Buchanan or a Ron Paul. Um, the Iraq war, when that started and when 9-11 happened, I, I did believe that, you know, particularly after 9-11, that there were things the United States had to do to respond to that. I still believe that. Um, and, uh, you know, that that for me was uh, an important experience. But but there was always kind of around me, even after 9-11, this kind of skepticism of America becoming too involved uh, overseas. Nonetheless, I, I grew up in a uh, in a family that that, you know, we didn't have a lot of uh, people that had military careers, but I had grandfathers that had served in the military. And at a young age, it's something I became very interested in. And so I started studying a lot about the military. It's one of these kids that would go to the bookstore and buy like the James ship identification books and the tank identification books. Like I can still tell the difference between a, a T-62 tank and a T-72 tank to this day. And like the difference between like a, a Russian kilo class sub and a Russian Foxtrot sub, that was me growing up. And I really got, um, you know, interested in the history of the Marine Corps. And so after I graduated um, high school, um, you know, I was on my way to college, but to be frank, I was burned out from school. So, um, you know, a few weeks into uh, college, I, I actually dropped out and enlisted in the Marine Corps, and this was in 2005, so at the height of the Iraq War. And I enlisted in the infantry, and um, my first two years, I was part of what was called the Yankee White Program, which is the Presidential Support Program. And uh, so I was up at Camp David at the Presidential Retreat there. Spent a few months waiting for security clearance at the Marine Barracks in Washington. After my time in that program was up, I went to 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, and I deployed to Iraq with them. And I, I deployed to Iraq at an interesting time. It was at the tail end of the surge, and it was as we were starting a transition uh, to the SOFA, the Status of Forces Agreement, which set the initial timeline for the United States to get out of Iraq and after the first couple of months we were there, there were restrictions on what we could do. Um, and I've said this before, and, uh, you know, it, this might sound kind of strange at first. So, you know, it's worth kind of hearing me out here is when I was in Iraq, um, you could walk away from the country thinking, okay, this might work out somewhat. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be a Jeffersonian democracy, but, you know, I, I think you could say that we could salvage something of what you could call a victory there. Um, there was a term that was used when I was there called Iraq good enough. And if you go back and look at like from 2008 to 2009, you can see this in a lot of news reports and a lot of, you know, the Coindonistas started using that term. And basically, it's just a way of saying we, we vastly lowered expectations for what um, we could get out of Iraq. And uh, you know, the, 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 the ideas, the idealistic rhetoric around turning Iraq into a Jeffersonian democracy, that was pretty much gone by the time I was there. And it was basically at this point about stopping the bleeding. And so when I was there, there was still an active insurgency. It was still dangerous, but it wasn't like when a lot of my more senior Marines deployed, like in the battle of Fallujah, uh, battle Ramadi, or some of the the, the very violent campaigns in the Western Euphrates River Valley wasn't like that. And, and the Iraqi army was, was fairly confident at that point, and they could handle themselves somewhat well. 
So left, I left in the summer of 2009 and, um, I got on the Marine Corps shortly after. And at that point I, I started to, um, I went back just to real quick. I went back to college. Um, but I, I also started to read a lot and learn more about the war. And this is, I think an important point. I, I do think military service gives you a, a perspective on uh, war and foreign policy that is important. But one thing that I learned from that experience is that you don't see everything right. through, like e- even as somebody who's in Iraq, you don't learn or see everything about the war. And one thing that I started to learn about is why things became so peaceful in Iraq when I was there. And, you know, th- this is at the tail end of the surge, as I said, which everybody said, oh, this turned the war around and it was a smashing success. And it was because we doubled down and deployed more troops. Well, in the part of the country that I serve, it was essentially because we bought off the insurgency. Right. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, when we were doing the final withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, you heard a lot about like um, paratroopers and Marines at the at Kabul airport, like how surreal it might have been for them to work face to face with the Taliban, who they were, many of them were, were fighting just years before. And it was interesting to me because most Iraq vets that, that served like a tour in the early part of the war, which again, I only served one tour, but then in the later part of the war, they were working with Iraqi police officers and the sons of Iraq that in the early part of the war, they were fighting. And eventually we had paid to come to our side. And that, that, that at the end of the day is the biggest reason why the violence decreased. And also too, because of effectively large parts of the country were ethnically cleansed. Right. You know, we did kill a lot of insurgents. The, 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 the large number of troops did force a lot of them underground, but we didn't destroy Al Qaeda in Iraq. The, the foundation for which eventually became ISIS was still there. And so as I learned more and more about it, understand more about how the lies of the war or the lies that led us into the war, um, you know, and then, um, of course, five years later, every place that I served in Iraq, which at the time I thought like, oh, well, this could work, was under the control of ISIS. And clearly what, what was being built was not sustainable and um, did not lead to a, a better or more peaceful outcome for the Iraqi people or for the United States. And so for me, that experience and how it played out um really shaped where I am today on foreign policy. And um, when I eventually, after I graduated from college, I worked for a member of Congress for a couple of years, and then I started working with Concerned Veterans for America, which is part of the Stand Together community, and ultimately led to where I am uh, now in terms of my role. You know, there's a lot of um, veterans groups, and this goes back, you know, post-Vietnam, who are peace activists, but concerned veterans for America are um, skeptical of, uh, as you said, uh, American uh, foreign and, and military policy, but you're coming from more of a conservative point of view. Uh, do you find, I mean, in, in terms of your experience with other veterans, um, who are those veterans? Like, are you finding there are more veterans um, who or are coming from conservative or libertarian backgrounds who have been disenchanted uh, with the policies that they were serving under, um, who are, are more active 
in foreign policy? Or is it, you know, is it just a mixed bag like in every generation of, of, of veterans? Every every veteran comes back with, you know, his or her own perspective, and it might be completely different than the next guy or gal. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, and, and this is, I, I think, what you're getting at a bit, Kelly, is that, you know, the veteran community isn't monolithic. And, um, you know, a lot of what uh, shapes veterans and their political opinions is actually the same things that shape other people's political opinions, like where they live, how they grew up, economic experiences and things like that. I'm not saying military service doesn't have an impact, but it is not the defining factor in a lot of cases for how veterans vote or, or, or the positions they take. I will say on foreign policy, you have noticed a very interesting dynamic uh, over the last three years in particular, and that is the veteran community as a whole, when you look at polling and voter behavior, um, has been more skeptical of foreign intervention abroad, particularly around our endless wars, and even in this current fight in Ukraine, is that uh, on average between five to, in some cases, like 12, 15%, uh, there, there's higher levels of support for uh, or opposition to, say, staying in Iraq or staying in Afghanistan or going to war with Russia over Ukraine. Um, you see a, a noticeable and distinct difference between the veteran and military family community and the general population. The last poll that Concerned Veterans for America did um, on uh, foreign policy, we asked a question about Ukraine and 11 percent, the the, the the level of opposition to going uh, to war with Russia over Ukraine was 11% higher in the veteran community than in the general population. It was 60% in the veteran community, wow. 49% in the general population. Um, and that, you know, you know, of course, there are a lot of people in the general population that just, you know, they said, I don't know. That kind of speaks to the whole thing about how, you know, the salience of foreign policy in the national conversation, but... Um, again, we consistently saw that with Iraq, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of reasons for that. I would say the biggest reason is, is that um, the last 20 years, the, the burdens of our forever wars have been borne by a, a smaller and smaller community of people uh, affiliated with the military, of uh, veterans, uh, military families, you know, their, their sons, their daughters, their brothers and sisters, those are the ones that are likely to uh, enlist and, or commission. And they're the ones that are likely to go over not just once or twice or even three times, but five, six, right. a dozen times if you're in a special operations unit. And um, that, the, the, that, I think, has had a huge impact, particularly when you have people going back to the same places over and over again and seeing no change, but they're still seeing their friends get killed. They're getting injured themselves. And at, 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 at some point it just, you know, you, you get to the point where you just throw your hands up and saying, what, what the hell are we doing here? And I think that's been a big factor in it as well, too. Oh, and that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, hi, Dan. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, speaking of Ukraine, uh, you, you uh, brought up uh, views about, uh, U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Uh, the, the big debate right now is over the size of the package of military aid that the U.S. will be sending there. Um, there is some dissent in the Senate against that. I think I saw 11 senators have expressed their opposition to the, the $40 billion 
aid package. Uh, but otherwise, there's there's near unanimity in Congress with respect to sending this aid. And in my experience, when there's such overwhelming support for a measure, that's usually a good clue that no one is thinking through the potential risks and costs. Uh, so what, what are the risks and costs that you see in providing Ukraine with additional $40 billion in aid, especially without uh, serious scrutiny? Well, I, I see two big issues. The first is um, this aid is not connected to a a clear strategy or clear end state. Now, I want to be clear, just because that doesn't exist or if it, or let me back up. It, let's just, let's just say if that it did exist, that doesn't mean like, oh, okay, let's, let's send the aid. Like the Biden administration strategy makes sense. Let's go do this. It, it that, that doesn't, I'm not saying that because the strategy could be terrible. And, and obviously you wouldn't want to send the aid to support that. But it is worth noting is that the Biden administration uh, will say six different things about their Ukraine policy in five days. And it's like, we're going to support, you know, Ukrainian victory. We don't want the Ukrainians to do certain things in peace negotiations. No, we're going to support whatever the Ukrainians want. Well, we're, but we're not going to send ground troops if that's what they want. And it's back and forth and there's lack of clarity. And it's this mixed messaging that I really think has inhibited the Biden administration's response since the beginning of this crisis. And again, there's a lot of problems, but, but it's been that it's like the, the president saying one thing, you know, on the, on the uh, South lawn of the white house before he gets on Marine one. And then, you know, Tony Blinken saying that, you know, the United States will do anything to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine or something along those lines. And um, it's that mixed messaging is, is incredibly problematic. So you're, you're throwing, an amount of money that is seven times larger than what Ukraine spent on their defense budget before this war began and is bigger than the entire United States Navy shipbuilding budget, is bigger than the budget Department of Defense. And that's just this own aid package. That doesn't include the $14 billion that was just approved in March. And then the, the uh, I think it's close to $6 billion that was approved before that. And it's it's just throwing good money after bad. Um and and there's really no clear connection and nobody is making an effort to define that connection to, to how this benefits American national interests and our safety. And also too how it actually benefits the Ukrainians, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to have to use these weapons to fight the Russians. These are the people at the front lines. And if you're creating false expectations about what the United States is going can do and is willing to do, then you're going to just increase the level of bloodshed. So there, there's no real conversation or debate going on. Now, the oversight question, I think, is, is um, also important as well, too. Look, I mean, we are, are dumping tens of billions of dollars worth of small arms, um, highly advanced anti-tank missile systems. Now we're, we're putting in artillery. I was reading today, there's discussion about providing the Ukrainians with uh, HIMAR um, rocket systems and missile systems, potentially anti-ship weapons and things like that. Um, you know, Ukraine, and again, this isn't being anti-Ukrainian or pro-Russian. This is this is actual documented history. Ukraine has had serious problems since the end of the Cold War with, with uh, weapons trafficking. Um, Iran has a cruise missile program because, you know, in the early 2000s, corrupt elements of their government basically sold them cruise missile manufacturing technology and nuclear capable, you know, cruise missiles, the same thing with China. 
you know, uh, uh, movies are movies, but it's it's worth pointing out that the Lord of, Lord of War, that movie with Nicolas Cage that came out in 2005, based on, um, you know, a real arms dealer, Victor Bout, a large part of that takes place in Ukraine because tens of billions of dollars of, of weaponry was shipped out of Ukraine in the 1990s and early 2000s. So there, there, there needs, there, there's not even a real even gesture towards oversight here and trying to track these weapons and, and have a conversation about, okay, what's going to happen when these weapons start flooding out of Ukraine? Things like Stinger missiles. You know, what happens if some of these systems get to Western Europe or they find their way to the Middle East or Asia or, God forbid, North America? And that is that is an incredibly um, important question that needs to be asked because it, it could create all sorts of secondary consequences for the safety and security of people, not just in Eastern Europe, but potentially around the world. And, uh, and related to that question of oversight, uh, what questions do you want to see members of Congress asking the administration about uh, this aid package? And, and what assurances would you look for from the administration uh, on on these uh, on that question? Well, I, I think there's, you know, a, a number of issues. I mean, the, the, the biggest the biggest question is, is how is this going to make um, America safer? How is this in our interest? I think with any piece of, of legislation, that's what members of Congress should be asking first and foremost. But then secondarily to that is, I think it's totally legitimate to ask is like, how is this going to help the Ukrainian people? How is this not creating false expectations for the type of uh, around the types of support we're, we're willing to give them? How is this going to lead to an end state that limits bloodshed that reduces the risk of escalation or spillover in other parts of Eastern Europe. And, 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 and nobody in the Congress administration, I think, has really adequately answered that. And, and frankly, with how, how these things have been working in Congress for the last 20 years, there's kind of an expectation that the administration doesn't need to do that. And that, that's not with just this administration, but also with the Trump administration, the Obama administration, uh, and the and the Bush administration. This is part of a larger problem, which I, I know you two have talked and, and written about a lot about, you know, Congress essentially surrendering its role in, in shaping and overseeing American foreign policy to the executive branch and congressional leaders on both sides are totally fine with that. They're totally fine with just rubber stamping um, aid bills like this. You know, one one thing I just want to circle back on, though, real quick, which I'm, I'm probably a little more optimistic about the the number of votes um, that are against this bill. Um, I would note that uh, probably three or four years ago on a bill like this, you maybe would have only seen Rand Paul and Mike Lee and then maybe Bernie Sanders voting no. Now you have 11 Republicans voting no, and you might have more Republicans voting um, no on final passage. And just a couple months ago in the House, you only had about 10 Republicans voting against some of the early aid bills. And now you're at 57. So I'm seeing that's true. Um, I'm seeing uh, uh, some momentum there, which hopefully can be sustained, which shows us that there's increasing skepticism of these open ended aid bills to Ukraine. But also too. 
a sign that um, uh, these the the constituents of these representatives are not um, as bought into our strategy or our what our supposed end state is in Ukraine around victory, and that this just isn't a priority for them. And I just want to read a quote real quick um, that uh, was in a New York Times story this morning from uh, um, uh, Senator John Thune from South Dakota um, about what his, essentially what the constituents are thinking. And he says, a lot of the voices in the media are going after this and going after people and and it's an election season. So people are obviously paying a lot of attention to what their constituents think. Now, that should happen every year, regardless of whether it's an election year or not. But you have the second most powerful Republican in the Senate essentially saying, admitting that their constituents are not on board with what is, is, is uh, uh, you know, the Senate and the uh, executive branch want to do around Ukraine. And, and that, to me, is a is a is a, is a positive development overall. Exactly. And I'm, I'm, I imagine that your group is trying to find that wedge in that space and get that message out there so that the members can pay attention uh, more raptly to uh, what their constituents are saying and, and maybe act accordingly. Yes, there's there, there's a broad spectrum of groups um, who have come out in opposition to this this legislation. Even the Heritage Foundation, which is very interesting, and I think a reflection of where the conservative movement is, you know, however slowly or, or rapidly moving on on foreign policy. Well, thank you. I I know we've run out of time, um, but this was this was excellent. I, I hope you'll come back um, to talk more about uh, the Ukraine policy as we're moving forward. And I think it is very important that we continue to, to talk uh, to the veterans community about how they're feeling about things, but just regular Americans and and you know yeah. informing them and, and and allowing them to inform us and our lawmakers to make better decisions about these things. And Kelly, if you don't mind, I just want to say something real quick, and I alluded to this earlier. Is I think the veteran community has an important voice here, an important perspective, but we we don't have the the only perspective. And, and I, I talked about my experience in Iraq and, and I think it is, and this is, this is one thing we're trying to, to do with Concerned Veterans for America and, and Concerned Veterans for America Foundation is um, to better connect veterans to the bigger picture and about like the history behind where we've gotten to, how we've gotten to where we are with foreign policy. But, you know, again, I, I think that we have an important voice, but we aren't the only voice. And sometimes I think that, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the other other people who have uh, an important perspective here can be ignored as a result of that. And I I just want to make that clear, um, uh, you know, when we're talking about what Concerned Veterans for America does and, and, and what they're about. Yeah, no, I agree. But unfortunately, the, the the voices that are drowning every other voice out are usually from elites in Washington, yeah. um, not veterans. And I, I, I mean, yes. personally, I'd like to give more voice to veterans, along with other members of our society who have something to add to the discussion and not just rely on those voices from yeah. the blob and inside the beltway. So, yeah, Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. 
cool. Okay. Well, then you'll come back on. Yes. If you if you guys invite me, I'll come back. Okay. Uh, that, definitely, Dan. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.